This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, Chapter Thirty Three, Edward as King. Miles Hendon was picturesque enough before he got into the riot on London Bridge. He was more so when he got out of it. He had but little money when he got in, none at all when he got out. The pickpockets had stripped him of his last farthing. But no matter, so he found his boy. Being a soldier, he did not go at his task in a random way, but set to work, first of all, to arrange his campaign. What would the boy naturally do? Where would he naturally go? Well, argued Miles, he would naturally go to his former haunts, for that is the instinct of unsound minds, when homeless and forsaken, as well as of sound ones. Whereabouts were his former haunts? His rags, taken together with a low villain who seemed to know him and who even claimed to be his father, indicated that his home was in one or another of the poorest and meanest districts of London. Would the search for him be difficult or long? No, it was likely to be easy and brief. He would not hunt for the boy. He would hunt for a crowd. In the centre of a big crowd, or a little one, sooner or later, he should find his poor little friend, sure. And the mangy mob would be entertaining itself with pestering and aggravating the boy, who would be proclaiming himself king, as usual. Then Miles Hendon would cripple some of those people, and carry off his little ward, and comfort and cheer him with loving words, and the two would never be separated any more. So Miles started on his quest. Hour after hour he tramped through back alleys and squalid streets, seeking groups and crowds, and finding no end of them, but never any sign of the boy. This greatly surprised him, but did not discourage him. To his notion there was nothing the matter with his plan of campaign. The only miscalculation about it was that the campaign was becoming a lengthy one, whereas he had expected it to be short. When daylight arrived at last, he had made many a mile, and canvassed many a crowd, but the only result was that he was tolerably tired, rather hungry, and very sleepy. He wanted some breakfast, but there was no way to get it. To beg for it did not occur to him. As to pawning his sword, he would as soon have thought of parting with his honour. He could spare some of his clothes, yes, but one could as easily find a customer for a disease as for such clothes. At noon he was still tramping among the rabble which followed after the royal procession now, for he argued that this regal display would attract his little lunatic powerfully. He followed the pageant through all its devious windings about London, and all the way to Westminster and the Abbey. He drifted here and there amongst the multitudes that were massed in the vicinity for a weary long time, baffled and perplexed, and finally wandered off, thinking and trying to contrive some way to better his plan of campaign. By and by, when he came to himself out of his musings, he discovered that the town was far behind him and that the day was growing old. He was near the river, and in the country. It was a region of fine rural seats, not the sort of district to welcome clothes like his. It was not at all cold, so he stretched himself on the ground in the lee of a hedge to rest and think. Drowsiness presently began to settle upon his senses. The faint and far-off boom of cannon was wafted to his ear, and he said to himself, "'The new king is crowned,' and straightway fell asleep. He had not slept or rested before for more than thirty hours. He did not wake again until near the middle of the next morning. He got up, lame, stiff, and half-famished, washed himself in the river, stayed his stomach with a pint or two of water, 
and trudged off towards Westminster, grumbling at himself for having wasted so much time. Hunger helped him to a new plan now. He would try to get speech with old Sir Humphrey Marlowe, and borrow a few marks, and—but that was enough of a plan for the present. It would be time enough to enlarge it when this first stage should be accomplished. Toward eleven o'clock he approached the palace, and although a host of showy people were about him, moving in the same direction, he was not inconspicuous. His costume took care of that. He watched these people's faces narrowly, hoping to find a charitable one whose possessor might be willing to carry his name to the old lieutenant. As to trying to get into the palace himself, that was simply out of the question. Presently our whipping-boy passed him, then wheeled about and scanned his figure well, saying to himself, "'And that is not the very vagabond his Majesty is in such a worry about. Then I am an ass, though I belike I was that before. He answereth the description to a rag. That God should make two such would be to cheapen miracles by wasteful repetition. I would I could contrive an excuse to speak with him.' Miles Hendon saved him the trouble for he turned about, then, as a man generally will when somebody mesmerizes him by gazing hard at him from behind, and observing a strong interest in the boy's eyes, he stepped toward him and said, "'You have just come out from the palace. Do you belong there?' "'Yes, your worship.' "'Know you Sir Humphrey Marlowe?' The boy started, and said to himself, "'Lord, mine old departed father!' Then he answered aloud, "'Right well, your worship.' "'Good. Is he within?' Yes, said the boy, and added to himself, within his grave. Might I crave your favour to carry my name to him, and say I beg to say a word in his ear? I will dispatch the business right willingly, fair sir. Then say, Miles Hendon, son of Sir Richard, is here without. I shall be greatly bounden to you, my good lad. The boy looked disappointed. The king did not name him so, he said to himself, but it mattereth not. This is his twin brother and can give his majesty news of t'other sir odds and ends, I warrant." So he said to Miles, "'Step in there a moment, good sir, and wait till I bring you word.' Hendon retired to the place indicated. It was a recess sunk in the palace wall, with a stone bench in it, a shelter for sentinels in bad weather. He had hardly seated himself when some halberdiers, in charge of an officer, passed by. The officer saw him, halted his men, and commanded Hendon to come forth. He obeyed, and was promptly arrested as a suspicious character prowling within the precincts of the palace. Things began to look ugly. Poor Miles was going to explain, but the officer roughly silenced him, and ordered his men to disarm him and search him. "'God of his mercy grant that they find somewhat,' said poor Miles. "'I have searched to know, and failed. Yet is my need greater than theirs.' Nothing was found but a document. The officer tore it open, and Hendon smiled when he recognized the pot-hooks made by his lost little friend that black day at Hendon Hall. The officer's face grew dark as he read the English paragraph, and Miles blanched to the opposite color as he listened. "'Another new claimant of the crown!' cried the officer. "'Verily they breed like rabbits to-day. Seize the rascal men, and see ye keep him fast, whilst I convey this precious paper within, and send it to the king.' He hurried away, leaving the prisoner in the grip of the halberdiers. "'Now is my evil luck ended at last,' muttered Hendon, "'for I shall dangle at a rope's end for a certainty, by reason of that bit of writing. And what will become of my poor lad? Ah! only the good God knoweth!' By and by he saw the officer coming again, in a great hurry, so he plucked his courage together, proposing to meet his trouble as became a man. The officer ordered the men to loose the prisoner and return his sword to him, then bowed respectfully and said, "'Please you, sir, to follow me.' 
Hendon followed, saying to himself, "'And I were not travelling to death and judgment, and so must needs economize in sin, I would throttle this knave for his mock courtesy.' The two traversed a populous court, and arrived at the grand entrance of the palace, where the officer, with another bow, delivered Hendon into the hands of a gorgeous official, who received him with profound respect, and led him forward through a great hall, lined on both sides with rows of splendid flunkies, who made reverential obeisance as the two passed along, but fell into death-throes of silent laughter at our stately scarecrow, the moment his back was turned, and up a broad staircase among flocks of fine folk, and finally conducted him into a vast room, clove a passage for him through the assembled nobility of England, then made a bow, reminded him to take his hat off, and left him standing in the middle of the room, a mark for all eyes, for plenty of indignant frowns, and for a sufficiency of amused and derisive smiles. Miles Hendon was entirely bewildered. There sat the young king, under a canopy of state, five steps away, with his head bent down and aside, speaking with a sort of human bird of paradise, a duke, maybe, Hendon observed to himself that it was hard enough to be sentenced to death in the full vigour of life, without having this peculiarly public humiliation added. He wished the king would hurry about it. Some of the gaudy people near by were becoming pretty offensive. At this moment the king raised his head slightly, and Hendon caught a good view of his face. The sight nearly took his breath away. He stood gazing at the fair young face like one transfixed, then presently ejaculated, "'Lo! the lord of the kingdom of dreams and shadows on his throne!' He muttered some broken sentences, still gazing and marvelling, then turned his eyes around and about, scanning the gorgeous throng and the splendid saloon, murmuring, "'But these are real! Verily these are real! Surely it is not a dream!' He stared at the king again, and thought, "'Is it a dream? Or is he the veritable sovereign of England, and not the friendless poor Tom O'Bedlam I took him for? Who shall solve me this riddle?' A sudden idea flashed in his eye as he strode to the wall, gathered up a chair, brought it back, planted it on the floor, and sat down in it. A buzz of indignation broke out, a rough hand was laid upon him, and a voice exclaimed, "'Up, thou mannerless clown! Would sit in the presence of the king!' The disturbance attracted His Majesty's attention, who stretched forth his hand and cried out, "'Touch him not! It is his right!' The throng fell back, stupefied. The king went on, "'Learn ye all, ladies, lords, and gentlemen, that this is my trusty and well-beloved servant, Miles Hendon, who interposed his good sword and saved his prince from bodily harm and possible death, and for this he is a knight by the king's voice. Also learn that for a higher service, in that he saved his sovereign stripes and shame, taking these upon himself, he is a peer of England, Earl of Kent, and shall have gold and lands meet for the dignity.' More, the privilege which he hath just exercised is his by royal grant, for we have ordained that the chiefs of his line shall have and hold the right to sit in the presence of the Majesty of England henceforth, age after age, so long as the crown shall endure. Molest him not. Two persons, who, through delay, had only arrived from the country during this morning, and had now been in this room only five minutes, stood listening to these words, and looking at the king, then at the scarecrow then at the king again, in a sort of torpid bewilderment. These were Sir Hugh and the Lady Edith, but the new earl did not see them. He was still staring at the monarch, in a dazed way, and muttering, "'Oh, body o' me! This my pauper! This my lunatic! 
this is he whom I would show what grandeur was in my house of seventy rooms and seven-and-twenty servants. This is he who had never known aught but rags for raiment, kicks for comfort, and offal for diet. This is he whom I adopted and would make respectable. Would God I had a bag to hide my head in! Then his manner suddenly came back to him, and he dropped upon his knees, with his hands between the kings, and swore allegiance, and did homage for his lands and titles. Then he rose, and stood respectfully aside, a mark still for all eyes, and much envy, too. Now the king discovered Sir Hugh, and spoke out with wrathful voice and kindling eye. "'Strip this robber of his false show and stolen estates, and put him under lock and key till I have need of him.' The late Sir Hugh was led away. There was a stir at the other end of the room now. The assemblage fell apart, and Tom Canty, quaintly but richly clothed, marched down between these living walls, preceded by an usher. He knelt before the King, who said, "'I have learned the story of these past few weeks, and am well pleased with thee. Thou hast governed the realm with right royal gentleness and mercy. Thou hast found thy mother and thy sisters again?' good they shall be cared for, and thy father shall hang, if thou desire it, and the law consent. Know all ye that hear my voice, that from this day they that abide in the shelter of Christ's hospital, and share the king's bounty, shall have their minds and hearts fed, as well as their baser parts, and this boy shall dwell there, and hold the chief place in its honourable body of governors during life, and for that he hath been a king it is meet that other than common observance shall be his due. Wherefore, note this his dress of state, for by it he shall be known, and none shall copy it. And wheresoever he shall come, it shall remind the people that he hath been royal in his time, and none shall deny him his due of reverence, or fail to give him salutation. He hath the throne's protection, he hath the crown's support. He shall be known and called by the honourable title of the King's Ward. The proud and happy Tom Canty rose and kissed the King's hand and was conducted from the presence. He did not waste any time, but flew to his mother, to tell her and Nan and Bet all about it, and get them to help him enjoy the great news. Footnote. Christ's Hospital, or Blue Coat School, the noblest institution in the world. The ground on which the priory of the great friars stood was conferred by Henry the Eighth on the Corporation of London, who caused the institution there of a home for poor boys and girls. Subsequently, Edward the Sixth caused the old priory to be properly repaired, and founded within it that noble establishment called the Blue Coat School, or Christ's Hospital, for the education and maintenance of orphans and the children of indigent persons. Edward would not let him, Bishop Ridley, depart till the letter was written to the Lord Mayor, and then charged him to deliver it himself, and signify his special request and commandment, that no time might be lost in proposing what was convenient, and apprising him of the proceedings. The work was zealously undertaken, Ridley himself engaging in it, and the result was the founding of Christ's Hospital for the Education of Poor Children. The King endowed several other charities at the same time. "'Lord God,' said he, "'I yield thee most hearty thanks that thou hast given me life thus long, to finish this work to the glory of thy name.' That innocent and most exemplary life was drawing rapidly to its close, and in a few days he rendered up his spirit to his Creator, praying God to defend the realm from papistry. J. Heneage Jesse's London, its celebrated characters and places. In the great hall hangs a large picture of King Edward the Sixth seated on his throne, in a scarlet and ermined robe, 
holding the sceptre in his left hand, and presenting with the other the charter to the kneeling Lord Mayor. By his side stands the Chancellor, holding the seals, and next to him are other officers of state. Bishop Ridley kneels before him with uplifted hands, as if supplicating a blessing on the event, whilst the aldermen, etc., with the Lord Mayor, kneel on both sides, occupying the middle ground of the picture. And lastly, in front, are a double row of boys on one side, and girls on the other. From the master and matron down to the boy and girl who have stepped forward from their respective rows, and kneel with raised hands before the king. Tim's Curiosities of London, page 98. Christ's Hospital was ancient custom, possesses the privilege of addressing the sovereign on the occasion of his or her coming into the city to partake of the hospitality of the Corporation of London. Ibid. The dining-hall, with its lobby and organ-gallery, occupies the entire story, which is 187 feet long, 51 feet wide, and 47 feet high. It is lit by nine large windows, filled with stained-glass on the south side, and is, next to Westminster Hall, the noblest room in the metropolis. Here the boys, now about eight hundred in number, dine, and here are held the suppings in public, to which visitors are admitted by tickets, issued by the treasurer, and by the governors of Christ's Hospital. The tables are laid with cheese in wooden bowls, beer in wooden piggins poured from leathern jacks, and bread brought in large baskets. The official company enter, the Lord Mayor, or President, takes his seat in a state chair, made of oak from St. Catherine's Church by the Tower. A hymn is sung, accompanied by the organ, a Grecian, or head-boy, reads the prayers from the pulpit, silence being enforced by three drops of a wooden hammer. After prayer the supper commences, and the visitors walk between the tables. At its close the trade-boys take up the baskets, bowls, jacks, piggins, and candlesticks, and pass in procession, the bowing to the governors being curiously formal. This spectacle was witnessed by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in 1845. Among the more eminent blue-coat boys are Joshua Barnes, editor of Anacreon and Euripides, Jeremiah Markland, the eminent critic, particularly in Greek literature, Camden, the antiquary, Bishop Stillingfleet, Samuel Richardson, the novelist, Thomas Mitchell, the translator of Aristophanes, Thomas Barnes, many years editor of the London Times, Coleridge, Charles Lamb, and Lee Hunt. No boy is admitted before he is seven years old, or after he is nine, and no boy can remain in the school after he is fifteen. King's boys and Grecians alone excepted. There are about five hundred governors, at the head of whom are the Sovereign and the Prince of Wales. The qualification for a governor is payment of five hundred pounds. Ibid. End of footnote. End of chapter 33. CONCLUSION JUSTICE AND RETRIBUTION When the mysteries were all cleared up, it came out, by confession of Hugh Hendon, that his wife had repudiated Miles by his command that day at Hendon Hall, a command assisted and supported by the perfectly trustworthy promise that if she did not deny that he was Miles Hendon, and stand firmly to it, he would have her life. Whereupon she said, Take it. She did not value it, and she would not repudiate Miles. Then the husband said he would spare her life, but have Miles assassinated. This was a different matter. So she gave her word and kept it. Hugh was not prosecuted for his threats or for stealing his brother's estates and title, because the wife and brother would not testify against him, and the former would not have been allowed to do it, even if she had wanted to. 
Hugh deserted his wife and went over to the continent, where he presently died. And by and by the Earl of Kent married his relict. There were grand times and rejoicings at Hendon Village when the couple paid their first visit to the hall. Tom Canty's father was never heard of again. The king sought out the farmer who had been branded and sold as a slave, and reclaimed him from his evil life with the Ruffler's gang, and put him in the way of a comfortable livelihood. He also took that old lawyer out of prison, and remitted his fine. He provided good homes for the daughters of the two Baptist women whom he saw burned at the stake, and roundly punished the official who laid the undeserved stripes upon Miles Hendon's back. He saved from the gallows the boy who had captured the stray falcon, and also the woman who had stolen a remnant of cloth from a weaver. But he was too late to save the man who had been convicted of killing a deer in the royal forest. He showed favour to the justice who had pitied him when he was supposed to have stolen a pig, and he had the gratification of seeing him grow in the public esteem and become a great and honoured man. As long as the king lived he was fond of telling the story of his adventures, all through, from the hour that the sentinel cuffed him away from the palace-gate, till the final midnight, when he deftly mixed himself into a gang of hurrying workmen, and so slipped into the abbey, and climbed up and hid himself in the confessor's tomb and then slept so long the next day that he came within one of missing the coronation altogether. He said that the frequent rehearsing of the precious lesson kept him strong in his purpose to make its teachings yield benefits to his people, and so, whilst his life was spared, he should continue to tell the story, and thus keep its sorrowful spectacles fresh in his memory, and the springs of pity replenished in his heart. Miles Hendon and Tom Canty were favourites of the King, all through his brief reign and his sincere mourners when he died. The good Earl of Kent had too much sense to abuse his peculiar privilege, but he exercised it twice after the instance we have seen of it, before he was called from the world, once at the accession of Queen Mary, and once at the accession of Queen Elizabeth. A descendant of his exercised it at the accession of James I. Before this one's son chose to use the privilege, near a quarter of a century had elapsed, and the privilege of the Kents had faded out of most people's memories. So, when the Kent of that day appeared before Charles I and his court, and sat down in the sovereign's presence, to assert and perpetuate the right of his house, there was a fine stir indeed. But the matter was soon explained, and the right confirmed. The last Earl of the Line fell in the wars of the Commonwealth fighting for the King, and the odd privilege ended with him. Tom Canty lived to be a very old man, a handsome, white-haired old fellow, of grave and benignant aspect. As long as he lasted he was honoured, and he was also reverenced, for his striking and peculiar costume kept the people reminded that, in his time, he hath been royal. So wherever he appeared the crowd fell apart, making way for him, and whispering one to another, "'Doff thy hat! It is the King's ward!' And so they saluted, and got his kindly smile in return, and they valued it, too, for his was an honourable history. Yes, King Edward the Sixth lived only a few years, poor boy, but he lived them worthily. More than once, when some great dignitary, some gilded vassal of the crown, made argument against his leniency, and urged that some law which he was bent upon amending was gentle enough for its purpose, and wrought no suffering or oppression which any one need mightily mind, the young king turned the mournful eloquence of his great compassionate eyes upon him, and answered, what dost thou know of suffering and oppression? I and my people know, but not thou. 
The reign of Edward the Sixth was a singularly merciful one for those harsh times. Now that we are taking leave of him, let us try to keep this in our minds to his credit. End of conclusion. General note: One hears much about the hideous blue laws of Connecticut and is accustomed to shudder piously when they are mentioned. There are people in America and even in England who imagine that they were a very monument of malignity, pitilessness, and inhumanity, whereas in reality they were about the first sweeping departure from judicial atrocity which the civilized world had seen. This humane and kindly blue law code of two hundred and forty years ago stands all by itself with ages of bloody law on the further side of it, and a century and three-quarters of bloody English law on this side of it. There has never been a time, under the blue laws or any other, when above fourteen crimes were punishable by death in Connecticut. But in England, within the memory of men who are still hale in body and mind, two hundred and twenty-three crimes were punishable by death. See Dr. J. Hammond Trumbull's Blue Laws, True and False, page 11. These facts are worth knowing, and worth thinking about, too. Finis. End of The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain.